where Paul says, That he's got a crown coming to him. Just like Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, thieves can't break in and steal. So the Apostle Paul says that because of his labor for the Lord, there is laid up for him a crown. He says in verse 6 of uh, 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I have kept the faith. And then he knows he's going to be rewarded for his service. He says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The challenge I left you with, on last, with, with, left you with last Sunday was, do you find yourself in that category? It's a wonderful moment every time I read this to think this through do you love his appearing are you living your life kind of leaning forward anticipating Jesus coming are we living our lives up and out on what is coming and so it matters my choice now matters because of what's coming or are you focused like we so often can get in on yourself and think about looking down and in and am I being treated like I'd like to be treated? Or am I getting the things out of this life that I need to get out of this life? Or are people regarding me the way they should be regarding me? The Lord Jesus Christ came and showed you a better way, and it's not about us. Jesus didn't live his life for himself. He lived his life to please his Father. And that's the pattern. We don't live our lives for ourselves. We live our lives to please our Father. Because there's coming the judgment seat of Christ, where he'll render to everyone according to his deeds. In verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4, you and I are forevermore haunted in a, in, in a sanctified way with the truth that on the precipice of life and death is the question of the joy of our salvation and the coming of Christ. Do you love his appearing? The more you and I look to this world <clears throat> and the more we're honest and enlightened by God's word about the way the, the tendency of this world, the way it's going, the more you and I are going to say, I love his appearing because it's wrong. As we saw first hour, we are the problem. The fall of man has made man the problem, his own problem. And we're such a problem in our brokenness and sin, born into sin in Adam, that we cannot get ourselves out of this problem. And we need someone to come from outside the system, as it were, to save us from our sins. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that you, in the power of Jesus, are putting away your sins, but in God's grace, Jesus came in the power of the Spirit and died for your sins on the cross. He who knew no sin, as we said, was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. By God's grace, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. And the moment you trust in Jesus as your Savior from your sins, the righteousness of God is declared to your account by grace through faith. That is life. It's the beginning of life. And the rest of the, New the entirety of the New Testament is written for you and I to know how we should live it. Pardon me, for you and me, that we should know how to live it. Paul says, I did well. And because I live my life in the light of the coming of Christ, because I live my post-salvation life in light of the coming of Christ, there is the crown of righteous righteousness for me. Remember, Paul is the one who says he's the least of the saints and the greatest of the sinners. 
Paul itself, the name, means little or insignificant. And Paul, who, as Saul of Tarsus, had much to boast in and much to brag about, has nothing but Jesus Christ as his boast. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain in Philippians 1. So we are closing down Paul's life as he testifies in this last writing we have from him. In this personal letter to Timothy, which has been inscripturated in the Bible by the grace and provision of God the Holy Spirit, we're closing down this study at the pers- looking at the personal life, the personal perspective of, Timothy, of Paul. He is telling his, one of perhaps his closest confidant his heart, and he is addressing personal matters. He's going to ask Timothy for help, and he's not above, I need some help. He's going to say more than once, do everything it takes to get to me soon. Come to me soon. Because we don't know how long Paul has left to live. It may be he's urgent because his life is soon to be over. And remember, 2 Timothy is written to encourage Timothy to pick up and move on in the Christian ministry. But this is one of the most personal um, insight, places of insight you'll get into the life of Paul. And as I start that talk on verses 9 through 22, closing down the Pauline corpus, I want to say... that Paul is difficult for us to discern in terms of his personality. You know what made him laugh? I don't. I've studied him in depth as much as, as depth as I can uh, with the time I have. I don't know what made him laugh. Very little in Paul's letters is, could be classified as humorous. There are some statements, but they're usually sarcastic statements about the foolishness of the Corinthians. I know something of his personality, I guess. Do you know what kind of sandwiches he ate? I mean, Elvis ate uh, peanut butter and banana sandwiches. If you didn't know that, that's extra. That's free for, you know. Elvis once chartered a plane to make a special trip across multiple states to get a certain peanut butter and banana sandwich from a gourmet peanut butter and banana sandwich chef. And then he he got the sandwiches and flew back (laughs) to, to Graceland. I don't know much about Elvis's personality either, but, um, but we don't really know much about Paul in, a, in terms of personal things, but we know what causes tears. We also know what's in his heart when he prays, and I think Paul, by God's grace, has set up, has been set up as an excellent, the par excellence example of a sinner saved by grace who lived his life on mission. Everything we have for him, from him is about the mission of the gospel. And that's why in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul can rejoice in the gloom of his impending death because of our so great salvation. Now, if there are a couple of themes that I could grab out of all we've studied in the Christian life of Paul... There are a couple of things I could grab and say these are the big takeaways from Paul's ministry. I would say that that first thing was the righteousness of God in distinction to our righteousness. The entirety of the book of Romans is written as a treatise on this, of the power of God through salvation because the gospel is righteousness for us. We don't have our own righteousness to save us. It can't. Only God's righteousness applied to us by grace through faith. Another great theme, of course, is the grace of God, that you don't do it, God does it. 
but the Spirit of God living you equips you to do what pleases God, and you walk with Him. Paul says that you've obeyed me in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Now much more in my absence. You obey me in my presence, now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation. Live it out with fear and trembling, for God is the one working in you both to want and to do what pleases Him. The work of the Spirit of God in us, equipping us for all that pleases God. So we've got righteousness of God, the justification by grace through faith, the grace of God, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by that same grace, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we walk in them. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And then, of course, you have to include eschatology in the great themes of Paul's writings. You live now in light of what's coming, which means your focus is on what's coming. You've loved his appearing is how Paul summarizes those that get the crown of righteousness. You are anxious, looking forward to God doing what he said. And you know what he said because you're in his word. You've got your finger in the, in the page. People say, well, you're so biblically minded, heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. No, that's, that's a satanic ruse to say something about someone this way. If you're biblically minded, then you're very intensely concerned for the people around you, for their eternal life. And no earthly good, do you mean worldly? Do you mean Satan's system of deception that revolts against God and says God is irrelevant? Or do you just mean that you can't talk to people because that might just be a personality hiccup? The more you're in the Word, the more you're conformed to Christ, and it is you, God's version of you, God's version of you more and more putting on the character of Christ to be about God's work. And finally, if there's a theme that I could say we've distilled from the Christian life of Paul that most most importantly encapsulates everything. Paul is not generally preaching to people that they need to come to Christ as their Savior. There are statements in Paul's writings and, and in what's written about him in Acts that tell you how to come to Christ as Savior, but that's really not his audience. The audience is always believers. And the message is always, in light of your so great salvation, work it, work it out in the mission God prepared for you. Paul is always on mission. And what is the mission? In the Christian life of Paul, it's the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. I came to reveal the Father. Father, I've done your work that you sent me to do to reveal you. And he commended this ministry in its new phase to the church when in Matthew 28 he said, go make disciples. Paul is about that work of making disciples of all the nations because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's constantly on mission to be intensely focused on the word of God as delivered from Paul will be intensely, intensely focused on the mission that God the Son has given us in Matthew 28 and Luke 1, sorry, in Luke 24 and Acts 1 and John 21 and in Mark 16. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, we close down Paul's ministry from all that we have from him with four personal concerns, four things that are on his mind. And the first is solitude. Paul is going to talk about the unfortunate status of his solitude, which he says, make every effort to come to me soon. The reason we don't think that uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 means to sit down in your desk and study is because this word is spudazo, and it's the same word Paul says to study to show thyself to approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2.15. This is to make every effort to have it as a mission focus. Whatever is on your list of things to do, put this at the top. Get here quick is what he's saying. 
You could also say, make haste to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world. Now, now if you leave Paul, if you go do something that's not with Paul, it doesn't mean that you're not serving the Lord. But Paul says the reason Demas left. Demas, loving this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Okay, we don't know if Crescens is on mission or not. I assume he is. We, we assume Titus is on mission to Dalmatia. But Demas is not on mission. He has loved this present world. Paul is under house arrest or in a prison at this point uh, with a sentence of death actually uh, decreed but not yet carried out. He's not been executed yet, and we know because he's writing the letter. Are you with me? It's hard to write something after your demise. Just ask Moses and Joshua who finished Deuteronomy for him. So uh, Demas is off mission. And how did he get there is the question. Now this is, a, this is tragic. This man, he may be a believer in Christ. I assume he is. I assume he's a Pauline associate who has dropped the ball. And Paul's writing Timothy who has dropped the ball at some point. Lots of dropping the ball in the New Testament. But he says... Demas has loved this present world, and so he's, he's, he's abandoned me, basically. First of all, forevermore in the Word of God is inscripturated the failure of Demas. I don't want to be this guy. <laughs> Second, the thing about this guy is uh, he has gotten distracted by something very, in, uh, very, very cheap, very chinchy. He's picking up pennies when we're supposed to be catching billion-dollar checks. That's what's happened. As he's bought this world and its temporary enticements and traded the eternal glory of God's purpose for him in the few moments of his life. He's playing instead of serving. Dave Ramsey's famous for, fa- for saying you should live like no one else if you want to live like no one else. You know what that means? Nobody lives on a budget, so nobody has money to go on European vacations or whatever. Middle-class people generally. We don't save, so we don't have to, to go do big things. When I was a kid, I, had, I adopted this attitude that um, I was going to study in school and make as much uh, points toward GPA, toward getting into college as I could, so that when I was 40, I would be playing. My friends are playing now. I'm going to study, and I'll play when I'm 40. And the rest of the story, now that I've, 40 has come and gone, is I'm playing with little kids a lot, and it's great. But the idea is uh, delayed gratification. Demis is grabbing something now and, sa- and sacrificing infinite wealth for then. And Paul says that's a tragedy, but he also says it has a personal consequence. He's alone. Demis apparently is supposed to be ministering to Paul, and apparently that's God's mission for Demis. How does Demis relate to the gospel mission? Well, he might have been. Uh, we don't really know what he did for Paul. We know it's bad enough and is well-known enough that Timothy would, would be needing to know this information. I'm all alone. Paul may be blind at this point. We have the, we're certain that he writes letters. Uh, you threw in amanuensis. At one point he says, see what large letters I write with my own hands. That means he can't see very well. He's got something with his eyes. And Demas... May have been one of his amanuenses. Maybe he was just a, a, a valet who helped him get through his day because Paul can't see well. Now, how would Demas think about his eternal destiny in terms of his mission? Oh, Paul, he's so sarcastic all the time. He's kind of a tough person to get around, and he wants to work all hours of the night. He's just, I'm just so tired. And all the work I have to do for Paul, 
I'm going to go play. I have this opportunity to do something else. I'm going to chase the world in Thessaloniki. Well, if we would think eternally and long for the coming of Christ and love his appearing, Demas would say, I get to serve one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who is propagating the gospel ministry to the world. All these places that Paul has associates, he's very important in God's work. And God's work is much more important than Paul or anyone else. And I have a part in the work. It may be that Demas' spiritual gift was helps. and He was one of the people that helped Paul. You can speculate. But he was so important to Paul that Paul says the first person out of his mouth while he's all alone in jail is Demas has left me. Now, finally, Paul is in humiliation. He's under uh, sentencing of death. And uh, maybe being associated with Paul is to draw the political um, oppression that Paul is facing from, the, from Nero. In fact, that, that, that context makes me think that's probably what's wrong with Demas. Is he's, he'd rather live a little while and get off mission than die for the Lord. And that is true of every one of us in our weakest moments. My prayer is that it's not true of every one of us in our strongest moments. I'd rather, die, I'd rather live a little while longer than serve the Lord and have to die for it. Crescens is in Galatia, Titus is in Dalmatia. So Paul has lost his associates. There's one part in Acts where you read all the crew that's with Paul, and he's got a, he's got a coterie of co-workers in the gospel mission wherever he goes. He's got a dozen people that he teaches that also go and teach, that make disciples in his mission. It's awesome. And now he's alone. He's used to having the crew, and he doesn't have the crew. If you ever want to use the Apostle Paul's writings as an excuse to disregard God's people and not connect and not build real relationships and real discipling friendships, if you want to use Paul as an excuse to say, I'm just going to study the Word and and just have my relationship with God, then you're not really with Paul. That's not how he lived. Only Luke is with me. Now, this, this reminds me of that famous Christmas song, All I Want for Christmas is You. Nobody's here, well, except Luke. I don't want a lot for Christmas. You are all I'm asking for. You know <laughs> like that left-handed compliment, nothing's better than you. We don't want anybody. We didn't hire anyone. You, you, you applied, but we're not hiring. Nothing's better than you. Um, Luke is with me. He's not giving a left-handed compliment. He's just saying, I only have my doctor. And his associate, and Luke has an important ministry, but Paul is less capable of doing the work because he has fewer people present with him. And so I want you to get me some more people. I need you to grab John Mark. And this is a huge uh, turn of events in the life of Paul. Because in Acts chapter 13, Mark abandoned the work. John Mark, uh, I think it's his house that is the upper room. I think it's his parents' house. John Mark is with Paul and Silas on the first missionary journey, and it, he, they get into southern Galatia, and it gets rough, and Mark runs away. And not long after that, Paul is stoned to death. He is killed and miraculously resuscitated, revived. Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. So now I want you to get Mark. Now, the second journey, Paul and Silas, I said Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas don't go on the second journey together because Barnabas wants to bring Mark. He says, we can still use him. And Paul says, no, I had to carry more luggage because John quit in the middle of the trip. Mark, John Mark, I, I'm not going. That's my, 
historical fiction reconstruction there. Whyever Paul said, I'm not taking him on another trip, there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas took Mark and went elsewhere, and Paul went on his journey back to the churches they had gone in the first journey. And so notice Barnabas has discipled Mark. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark under the tutelage and oversight of the apostle Peter. And now he is mature and has such a reputation that Paul can say he's useful to me for service. What a great redemption. You ever have Christian falling outs? Excuse me. Christian fallings out where there is no perceived hope for recovery or restoration? There was such a sharp disagreement when we never hear from Barnabas again in the life of Paul, not in his ministry. And it doesn't mean that they're not friends. They don't, not that they don't share Christmas cards, but they don't work together anymore as we see in the rest of the scripture. But Paul is going to benefit just like we do from Barnabas discipling John Mark. Huge win that did not require the ministry of the apostle Paul. Paul didn't have to disciple John Mark. But it's a family work. It's a team. So pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. But Tychicus, I know it says Tychicus in your Bible. And in modern Greek, they'd say Tychicus, because they put all the vowels as I sound, E. But Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. I think Tychicus handed uh, Timothy the letter. (laughs) Tychicus is standing in front of you as you're reading this letter. I think that's what that means. So if you think about who's with me, uh, Timothy, there's nobody. Because just Luke, it, even Tuchicus, my uh, one of his runners, one of his uh, many associates is in Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak, which I left in Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. That's all we really need. I need to be warm and I need my Bible. <laughs> That's all I need on death row. My physical body is weak and it's uncomfortable. Please bring me the cloak. Garments are expensive. Fabrics and textiles, major industry through all of world history. I need my cloak. He left it with Carpus. We can ask why in heaven. Why'd you leave your cloak with Carpus? My suspicion, Carpus needed it. But I, I, need, I need it. How personal is this? How just simple, down to earth? He's writing and he's cold, and I, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want the Apostle Paul to be cold. I am living in a house that God used him to build. I am blessed beyond any amount I can imagine by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And, he, and he's cold as he's facing death, and he's alone. And that is sad. But it's all glory because God is going to use it to glorify himself. Because look at Paul's attitude about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to get the crown. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness and for all those who have loved his appearing. The second thing we see in Paul that the the cloak hinted at is his suffering. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It seems kind of potpourri through here. Bring me the coat. Now I'm going to gripe about Alexander. This is a dad telling his spiritual son where the traps are, where the pitfalls. You don't want to go I-20 I right now. There's, a, there's a, a bridge out. 
He's warning him of somebody dangerous. This is not Paul gossiping about Alexander the coppersmith. This is Paul protecting the ministry of the gospel in the life of Timothy. He also reminds us of what he teaches in Romans chapter 12. Here at Christmas time, I don't hear much from Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol before I really want him to be out of the picture. We need, Lord, you need to do something with this guy. In fact, if I was in charge, I would just dispense with him, and he's, he's, he's outlived his usefulness, and, um, you know, give his inheritance, give his property's inheritance to, to the poor that deserve it or something. If I was running the show, I would get rid of him. But then he becomes the founder of the feast because God gets hold of him is the way Charles Dickens tells the story. That's the Christian reading of that. Mr. Potter, <laughs> he's just a weasened little spider. I can't say something more nasty to him than that with the, the, the motion picture association standards of, of verbal use. You know, We'll just say you're a weasened, dried up little spider. And basically say you're human debris and I hate you and I, I don't want you to uh, impact us anymore because he hurt people, because he's awful, because he'll destroy your life if you let him. Of course, Gollum. Some of you do movie marathons of the Lord of the Rings at Christmas time. And if you've never tried that, I don't necessarily recommend it. I just think that Tolkien did a great thing with the Lord of the Rings. Why is Gollum still alive? He's a murderer. You have people with righteous intent and weapons that could easily, righteously, dispatch with Gollum for their, his attempt to kill them. He tries to put the entire enterprise at risk by trying to steal the ring from the ring bearer from Frodo on his trip to Mordor. Spoiler alert. If you haven't read it, I, I probably don't need to say anything else, but you can't kill Gollum. You can't get rid of him in the story. The writer can't say justice comes on Gollum in the middle of the story. He's got to get his justice at the end because he's so vital to how the story's going to turn out. You can't have a resolution to the conflict unless Gollum makes it to the end. Remember that when you're dealing with the Potters and the Scrooges and the Gollums of this world. God has a plan for their lives, and sometimes, always, it's beyond anything you can imagine. And when you say, what is this thorn person in my side doing in my life? Just remember Gollum. What's it got in its pockets? What is Gollum doing in the story? He's, he's how God brings the resolution to the conflict. God's got a purpose. That's, in fact, in, in my view, the most ingenious thing Tolkien does in the whole story is what happens with Gollum. In Romans chapter 12, regarding the potters and the Scrooges and the Gollums, Paul says in Romans 12, 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Slipping down to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Slipping down. Never pay back in verse 17. Evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. In verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, in 2 Kings 6. I'm uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 32. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, 
You will heap burning coals on his head in Proverbs 25. The Lord will repay Alexander according to his deeds. So he hurt me. You watch out for him. You're not going to do anything to him. There's nothing you can do. It's nothing I can do. It's what the Lord will do. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. When you see the Apostle Paul go on the offensive against other people in his ministry, it's this. It's that they are fighting against the proclamation of God's word. I have learned in going on 15 years of ministry here with you that that is exactly what we need to reserve our sling for. That's what it's for, is the opposition to the word of God. And not to rationalize this inconvenient person I'm dealing with. How can I see this person as opposing the word of God? That's not it. (laughs) When you see opposition to the word of God, and it happens, and I know it sounds crazy that it does, but Paul says in Acts 20, that's going to happen. The the wolves are not going to spare the flock. And so the shepherd has to use the sling at times. And this is what he's doing here. He's, He's protecting Timothy. He had vigorously opposed our teaching. Now notice when Paul talks about his suffering, it's the opposition to the word of God. When Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians for what you could pray for him, ask on my behalf that the gospel will go forward and be glorious and that I'll be protected for not all men have the faith. Next, Paul is going to seek Timothy for support. And he's going to refer to the support, I'm sorry, he's going to seek God for support when he's all alone. Remember, Demas has left him perhaps because of the persecution, just like Peter and the disciples scattered on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Listen to this. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Who does that sound like? May it not be counted against those who should support me, but don't. That sounds like Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. It sounds like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. His first offense would be when he went before the, the tribunal to determine his guilt or innocence in sedition or whatever the charge was that eventually would get him executed. Now, in a defense, you are making an argument. You're making the case. And that's what Paul lived to do. So as in the closing chapters of Acts, we have one of Paul's uh, presentations this way before the Roman tribunal. This is how he does it. He looks for that opportunity, and he gets up and shares the truth. And even in this question of, are you going to live or die? Are we going to execute you or let you go? Look what Paul does. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The lion is 1 Peter 5.8. It's the roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And him devouring Paul is not dying physically. It's shutting down his testimony. It's telling him that his loss of life is something more to be feared than God's disappointment at our failure to walk with him, our failure to proclaim him. And so I was saved from the lion's mouth as the Lord stood with me as I'm all alone in my proclamation of the gospel, even before the magistrates, the Roman procurator and uh, whoever ultimately would decide his fate. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think I know fewer people, I don't think I know anyone in the Bible better than I understand or know Paul because so much has been written by him. 
But because of what he wrote, I know the Lord Jesus much better than I know Paul. And Paul thinks that to be rescued from every evil deed includes what happens after he's beheaded. He'll bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. So this is the second major statement that we've heard in chapter 4 that he's about to die. And that's why I think make every effort, spudazo, be in haste to come see me as soon as you can. And then Paul issues salutations. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. These are beloved disciples of the Lord Jesus that he has evangelized and brought along in the faith as their pastor, and they are making disciples because of his effort. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. He does it again. Spudazzo, study to come before, make, make it your mission thing, get here. Now, when you get here, I'm expecting a cloak, and that would be really nice before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. In Paul's mind, it is all about God, and so he's concerned for God's people. In Paul's life, he's rich. Look at the wealth of the people that he knows that we don't know. The people that are associates of his and Timothy's that we'll meet. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the family. Here at Christmas time, when it's a reflection on family, the older we get, the more we remember the times we had before. So much of getting together is reminiscing about previous times of getting together. Here at the end of Paul's writing ministry, at the end of his life, He's listing people that are on his mind, that are in his prayers, that he wants Timothy to say hello to if Timothy sees them, since he won't. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The last words of the Apostle Paul are some good last words in the Word of God, by the design of the Spirit of God. Now, I think we have just a sample of Paul's many letters. Remember the work through we did, I don't know, like in 2019? <laughs> we did a work through of 2 Corinthians and how that would have gone chronologically. Because 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter we know of. Know of. Paul wrote something to, to the Corinthians, and then they wrote back, and then he wrote 1 Corinthians in response to their response. And then there was some time and some, some, a, a visit that Paul made, and then a letter that he wrote them. And then they responded, and then 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that we know of. Remember that ridiculously long work through we did? It wasn't that long, but it was, it was really involved to run that down. We think, well, there's the first letter to the Corinthians, and then there's the second letter to the Corinthians. But in just in studying the details of those letters, you know there's four of them. You have to conclude at least four, I think probably 40. We have a very small sample of what God used the Apostle Paul to write in his ministry as the Apostle over these churches. Isn't it beautiful, God's design, though? This is going to be the last letter. It's personal. The disciple-maker in the ministry of the Lord Jesus is making a disciple of Timothy. He's equipping him in some master's-level stuff. You've fallen. You've got to pick it up. and you fell down in your ministry. You've got to pick it up, rekindle the gift, and get back to work. The last letter we have is that kind of encouraging letter. <clears throat> it is never in 2 Timothy said, there, there, it hurts. Sometimes you just have to hurt. He doesn't relish or, or wallow in the suffering. He, every time he mentions suffering, turns it to Jesus Christ and let's look up and out, not in and down.
My mother said recently that uh, we were talking about how you get stiff when you sit down too long. It's coming for you who don't know what I'm talking about. My grandpa used to say, she said, JJ used to say, uh, when you feel, when you're feeling you're hurt and just get up and move around, you'll feel better. Paul was always on, work, on the mission. He was always aggressive. And when he was still, his pen was active. I don't know of a harder working work ethic presented in the scriptures. When he couldn't support himself, or excuse me, when the gospel ministry was not bringing support, he would make tents. He would work on the side. He taught us all to be tent makers and not say, well, I won't go in ministry if I can't be a full-time supported. I will work whatever I need to work to do the work of God when he gives me an opportunity. Paul would minister as it were on the weekends. And I would say, what a waste of resources. Because we have the word of God in the book of Romans, but I will never see a tent made by the Apostle Paul. That's long since deteriorated and, and withered away to nothing. If someone tries to sell you one on eBay or something, <laughs> no relics. This is the relic. This is the deposit. Paul did not enjoy suffering but he enjoyed the Lord. He did not use the fact of his suffering as a reason to decide what he would choose. He used the word of God and the prompting of the spirit of God as the determinant of what he chose. And if suffering came, he was willing to embrace it and he would suffer under that. He did not stay and fight or stay and take it and stay and be tortured if he could get out the back window. But when it came time, to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in front of the Gentile court, he didn't shy away. Now's the time. And Paul never did anything on his own. He never did anything of consequence in his own power. Paul's our example, and we're rich for knowing what he taught us of the Lord Jesus, tacitly or implicitly of himself, and the more we pay attention to what he said, I contend, the better. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Beloved, the world is full of distractions and deception from what matters most. Because the world is being administered by God's enemy. God's enemy is your enemy, and he wants you to be miserable eternally. What the world offers us is temporary diversion, temporary enjoyment and pleasure, and place of abiding in eternal joy. And the more you and I experience of this world, the more we realize it's not satisfying. It's not enough. But God is gracious to us. He didn't condemn us or consign us to a life of figuring this out by our own experience. He gave us the book of Ecclesiastes and all of the scriptures to say that life is best lived in joy, in the praise of God and the glory of the inheritance among the saints. Maybe you don't have this life. Maybe it's not clear to you how to get there. Maybe you say, okay, I think this guy really believes what he's saying, but... I don't really have this. Well, you can. It's the easiest 
thing in the world. In a way, it's very easy because there's nothing you can do for it. You have to receive what someone else did. In a way, it's, it's impossibly hard because you have to let go of any claim you have to righteousness and say, I need a Savior because of my sin. But the simple promise of God is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. And the Apostle Paul and his associate Silas said that to a Roman jailer after he had scourged them and chained them to one another, probably hands to feet. Their, their wrists changed to their ankles overnight, open wounds on their backs. After miraculous work of God, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. Faith is very clearly the absence of your work, your merit, your addition to the work of Christ. It is simply and completely saying only Jesus is the Savior. I'm trusting alone in Him. There is no point to Christmas unless God took on flesh. And there is no reason for the incarnation of God and man except to pay for our sins on the cross so that we can have eternal life, so that all men can come to know Jesus Christ and God the Father through Him. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle John, in writing of the miracles of Christ, says these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This Christmas time, you need to receive the gift that has been bought for you with the blood of Christ. Believe in the Son. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. Let go of your claim to righteousness. If you're struggling with personal sin, welcome to the party. Personal sin is the blight of mankind. But you're not going to get salvation from God by putting away your sins. You can't put away your sins. You've already sinned enough that you're guilty before God forever. What you must do is trust in the one who died in your place to pay for your sins. Yes, we walk in the light. We're called to walk in righteousness, to live righteously before God. We need the Spirit of God in us to do that. But for first things first, we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our Father, we thank you for our so great salvation. We thank you for the gift that we celebrate always. Thank you that we still live in a free country of sorts. There is still the vestiges of the freedom of the founding. We can worship you in this freedom. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for its salvation. We pray for our missions work for those that are on the, on the field that you've given us the privilege to support, and all those who are proclaiming your truth. Father, bless us as we go forward to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.